His Own by Max Stirner, continued, Cassette 10, Side 1. Thus the reproach is brought up against Hegel by Feuerbach that he misuses language, understanding by many words something else than what natural consciousness takes them for. And yet he too commits the same fault when he gives the sensuous a sense of unusual eminence. Thus it is said on page 69, the sensuous is not the profane, the destitute of thought, the obvious, that which is understood of itself. But if it is the sacred, the full of thought, the recondite, that which can be understood only through mediation, well then it is no longer what people call the sensuous. The sensuous is only that which exists for the senses. What, on the other hand, is enjoyable only to those who enjoy with more than the senses, who go beyond sense enjoyment or sense reception, is at most mediated or introduced by the senses. That is, the senses constitute a condition for obtaining it, but it is no longer anything sensuous. The sensuous, whatever it may be, when taken up into me, becomes something non-sensuous, which, however, may again have sensuous effects, as by the stirring of my emotions and my blood. It is well that Feuerbach brings sensuousness to honor, but the only thing he is able to do with it is to clothe the materialism of his new philosophy with what had hitherto been the property of idealism, the absolute philosophy. As little as people let it be talked into them that one can live on the spiritual alone without bread, so little will they believe his word that as a sensuous being one is already everything, and so spiritual, full of thoughts, etc. Nothing at all is justified by being, what is thought of is, as well as what is not thought of. The stone in the street is, and my notion of it is, too. Both are only in different spaces, the former in airy space, the latter in my head, in me, for I am space like the street. The professionals, the privileged, brook no freedom of thought, no thoughts that do not come from the giver of all good, be he called God, Pope, Church, or whatever else. If anybody has such illegitimate thoughts, he must whisper them into his confessor's ear and have himself chastised by him till the slave whip becomes unendurable to the free thoughts. In other ways, too, the professional spirit takes care that free thoughts shall not come at all. First and foremost, by a wise education. He on whom the principles of morality have been duly inculcated never becomes free again from moralizing thoughts and robbery perjury, overreaching, and the like, remain to him fixed ideas against which no freedom of thought protects him. He has his thoughts from above and gets no further. It is different with the holders of concessions or patents. Everyone must be able to have and form thoughts as he will. If he has the patent or the concession of a capacity to think, he needs no special privilege. But as all men are rational, it is free to everyone to put into his head any thoughts whatever and to the extent of the patent of his natural endowment to have a greater or less wealth of thoughts. Now one hears the admonitions that one is to honor all opinions and convictions, that every conviction is authorized, that one must be tolerant to the views of others, etc. But your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. Or rather, I mean the reverse. Your thoughts are my thoughts, which I dispose of as I will, and which I strike down unmercifully. They are my property, which I annihilate as I list. I do not wait for authorization from you first to decompose and blow away your thoughts. It does not matter to me that you call these thoughts yours too. They remain mine nevertheless. And how I will proceed with them is my affair, not a usurpation. It may please me to leave you in your thoughts. Then I keep still. 
Do you believe thoughts fly around free like birds, so that everyone may get himself some which he may then make good against me as his inviolable property? What is flying around is all mine. Do you believe you have your thoughts for yourselves and need answer to no one for them? Or, as you do also say, you have to give an account of them to God only? No, your great and small thoughts belong to me, and I handle them at my pleasure. The thought is my own only when I have no misgiving about bringing it in danger of death every moment, when I do not have to fear its loss as a loss for me, a loss of me. The thought is my own only when I can indeed subjugate it, but it never can subjugate me, never fanaticizes me, makes me the tool of its realization. So freedom of thought exists when I can have all possible thoughts, but the thoughts become property only by not being able to become masters. In the time of freedom of thought, thoughts, ideas, rule, but if I attain to property and thought, they stand as my creatures. If the hierarchy had not so penetrated men to the innermost as to take from them all courage to pursue free thoughts, that is, thoughts perhaps displeasing to God, one would have to consider freedom of thought just as empty a word as, say, a freedom of digestion. According to the professional's opinion, the thought is given to me. According to the free thinkers, I seek the thought. There, the truth is already found and extant, only I must receive it from its giver by grace. Here, the truth is to be sought and is my goal, lying in the future, toward which I have to run. In both cases, the truth, the true thought, lies outside me, and I aspire to get it, be it by presentation, grace, be it by earning, merit of my own. Therefore, one, the truth is a privilege. Two, no, the way to it is patent to all, and neither the Bible, nor the Holy Fathers, nor the Church, nor anyone else is in possession of the truth, but one can come into possession of it by speculating. Both, one sees, are propertyless in relation to the truth. They have it either as a fief, for the Holy Father is not a unique person. As unique, he is this Sixtus, Clement. But he does not have the truth as Sixtus, Clement, but as Holy Father, that is, as a spirit, or as an ideal. As a fief, it is only for a few, the privileged. As an ideal, for all, the patentees. Freedom of thought, then, has the meaning that we do indeed all walk in the dark and in the paths of error, but everyone can, on this path, approach the truth, and is accordingly on the right path. All roads lead to Rome, to the world's end, etc. Hence, freedom of thought means this much, that the true thought is not my own, for if it were this, how should people want to shut me off from it? Thinking has become entirely free, and has laid down a lot of truths which I must accommodate myself to. It seeks to complete itself into a system, and to bring itself to an absolute constitution. In the state, it seeks for the idea, say, till it has brought out the rational state, in which I am then obliged to be suited. In man, anthropology, till it has found man. The thinker is distinguished from the believer only by believing much more than the latter, who, on his part, thinks of much less as signified by his faith, creed. The thinker has a thousand tenets of faith, where the believer gets along with few. But the former brings coherence into his tenets, and takes the coherence in turn for the scale to estimate their worth by. If one or the other does not fit into his budget, he throws it out. The thinkers run parallel to the believers in their pronouncements. Instead of, 
if it is from God, you will not root it out, the word is, if it is from the truth, is true, etc. Instead of, give God the glory, give truth the glory. But it is very much the same to me whether God or the truth wins. First and foremost, I want to win. Aside from this, how is an unlimited freedom to be thinkable inside of the state or society? The state may well protect one against another, but yet it must not let itself be endangered by an unmeasured freedom, a so-called unbridledness. Thus, in freedom of instruction, the state declares only this, that it is suited with everyone who instructs as the state, or, speaking more comprehensively, the political power, would have it. The point for the competitors is this, as the state would have it. If the clergy, for example, does not will as the state does, then it itself excludes itself from competition, vide France. The limit that is necessarily drawn in the state for any and all competition is called the oversight and superintendence of the state. In bidding freedom of instruction keep within the due bounds, the state at the same time fixes the scope of freedom of thought, because, as a rule, people do not think farther than their teachers have thought. Here, Minister Guizot, the great difficulty of today is the guiding and dominating of the mind. Formerly, the church fulfilled this mission. Now, it is not adequate to it. It is from the university that this great service must be expected, and the university will not fail to perform it. We, the government, have the duty of supporting it therein. The charter calls for the freedom of thought and that of conscience. So, in favor of freedom of thought and conscience, the minister demands the guiding and dominating of the mind. Catholicism hailed the examinee before the forum of ecclesiasticism, Protestantism before that of biblical Christianity. It would be but little bettered if one hailed him before that of reason, as Ruga wants to do. Whether the church, the Bible, or reason, to which, moreover, Luther and Huss already appealed, is the sacred authority, makes no difference in essentials. The question of our time does not become soluble even when one puts it thus, is anything general authorized or only the individual? Is the generality, such as state, law, custom, morality, etc., authorized or individuality? It becomes soluble for the first time when one no longer asks after an authorization at all and does not carry on a mere fight against privileges. A rational freedom of teaching, which recognizes only the conscience of reason, does not bring us to the goal. We require an egoistic freedom of teaching, rather, a freedom of teaching for all ownness, wherein I become audible and can announce myself unchecked. That I make myself audible, this alone is reason, be I ever so irrational. In my making myself heard, and so bearing myself, others as well as I myself enjoy me, and at the same time consume me. What would be gained if, as formerly the orthodox eye, the loyal eye, the moral eye, etc., was free, now the rational eye should become free? Would this be the freedom of me? If I am free as rational eye, then the rational in me, or reason, is free. And this freedom of reason, or freedom of the thought, was the ideal of the Christian world from of old. They wanted to make thinking, and, as aforesaid, faith is also thinking, as thinking is faith, free. The thinkers, the believers as well as the rational, were to be free. For the rest, freedom was impossible. But the freedom of thinkers is the freedom of the children of God, and at the same time, the most merciless hierarchy or dominion of the thought. For I succumb to the thought. If thoughts are free, I am their slave. 
I have no power over them and am dominated by them. But I want to have the thought, want to be full of thoughts, but at the same time I want to be thoughtless, and instead of freedom of thought I preserve for myself thoughtlessness. If the point is to have myself understood and to make communications, then assuredly I can make use only of human means, which are at my command because I am at the same time man. And really I have thoughts only as man, as I, I am at the same time thoughtless. He who cannot get rid of a thought is so far only man, is a thrall of language, this human institution, this treasury of human thoughts. Language, or the word, tyrannizes hardest over us because it brings up against us a whole army of fixed ideas. Just observe yourself in the act of reflection, right now, and you will find how you make progress only by becoming thoughtless and speechless every moment. You are not thoughtless and speechless merely in, say, sleep, but even in the deepest reflection, yes, precisely then most so. And only by this thoughtlessness, this unrecognized freedom of thought or freedom from the thought, are you your own. Only from it do you arrive at putting language to use as your property. If thinking is not my thinking, it is merely a spun-out thought. It is slave work or the work of a servant obeying at the word. For not a thought, but I am the beginning for my thinking, and therefore I am its goal too, even as its whole course is only a course of my self-enjoyment. For absolute or free thinking, on the other hand, thinking itself is the beginning, and it plagues itself with propounding this beginning as the extremist abstraction, such as being. This very abstraction, or this thought, is then spun out further. Absolute thinking is the affair of the human spirit, and this is a holy spirit. Hence this thinking is an affair of the parsons, who have a sense for it, a sense for the highest interests of mankind, for the spirit. To the believer, truths are a settled thing, a fact. To the free thinker, a thing that is still to be settled. Be absolute thinking ever so unbelieving, its incredulity has its limits, and there does remain a belief in the truth, in the spirit, in the idea and its final victory. This thinking does not sin against the Holy Spirit. But all thinking that does not sin against the Holy Spirit is belief in spirits or ghosts. I can as little renounce thinking as feeling, the spirit's activity as little as the activity of the senses. As feeling is our sense for things, so thinking is our sense for essences, thoughts. Essences have their existence in everything sensuous, especially in the word. The power of words follows that of things. First one is coerced by the rod, afterward by conviction. The might of things overcomes our courage, our spirit. Against the power of a conviction, and so of the word, even the rack and the sword lose their overpoweringness and force. The men of conviction are the priestly men, who resist every enticement of Satan. Christianity took away from the things of this world only their irresistibleness, made us independent of them. In like manner, I raise myself above truths and their power. As I am supersensual, so I am super-true. Before me, truths are as common and as indifferent as things. They do not carry me away and do not inspire me with enthusiasm. There exists not even one truth, not right, not freedom, humanity, etc., that has stability before me and to which I subject myself. They are words, nothing but words, as all things are to the Christian, nothing but vain things. In words and truths, every word is a truth, as Hegel asserts that one cannot tell a lie, 
There is no salvation for me, as little as there is for the Christian in things and vanities. As the riches of this world do not make me happy, so neither do its truths. It is now no longer Satan, but the Spirit that plays the story of the temptation. And he does not seduce by the things of this world, but by its thoughts, by the glitter of the idea. Along with worldly goods, all sacred goods, too, must be put away as no longer valuable. Truths are phrases, ways of speaking, words. Brought into connection or into an articulate series, they form logic, science, philosophy. For thinking and speaking, I need truths and words, as I do foods for eating. Without them, I cannot think nor speak. Truths are men's thoughts set down in words, and therefore just as extant as other things, although extant only for the mind or for thinking. They are human institutions and human creatures, and even if they are given out for divine revelations, there still remains in them the quality of alienness for me. Yes, as my own creatures, they are already alienated from me after the act of creation. The Christian man is the man with faith in thinking, who believes in the supreme dominion of thoughts and wants to bring thoughts, so-called principles, to dominion. Many a one does indeed test the thoughts and chooses none of them for his master without criticism. But in this, he is like the dog who sniffs at people to smell out his master. He is always aiming at the ruling thought. The Christian may reform and revolt an infinite deal, may demolish the ruling concepts of centuries. He will always aspire to a new principle or new master again, always set up a higher or deeper truth again, always call forth a cult again, always proclaim a spirit called to dominion, lay down a law for all. If there is even one truth only to which man has to devote his life and his powers because he is man, then he is subjected to a rule, dominion, law. He is a serving man. It is supposed that man, humanity, liberty, etc. are such truths. On the other hand, one can say thus, whether you will further occupy yourself with thinking depends on you. Only know that if, in your thinking, you would like to make out anything worthy of notice, many hard problems are to be solved, without vanquishing which you cannot get far. There exists, therefore, no duty and no calling for you to meddle with thoughts, ideas, truths. But if you will do so, you will do well to utilize what the forces of others have already achieved toward clearing up these difficult subjects. Thus, therefore, he who will think does assuredly have a task, which he, consciously or unconsciously, sets for himself in willing that. But no one has the task of thinking or of believing. In the former case, it may be said, you do not go far enough, you have a narrow and biased interest, you do not go to the bottom of the thing, in short, you do not completely subdue it. But on the other hand, however far you may come at any time, you are still always at the end, you have no call to step farther, and you can have it as you will or as you are able. It stands with this as with any other piece of work, which you can give up when the humor for it wears off. Just so, if you can no longer believe a thing, you do not have to force yourself into faith or to busy yourself lastingly as if with a sacred truth of the faith, as theologians or philosophers do, but you can tranquilly draw back your interest from it and let it run. Priestly spirits will indeed expound this, your lack of interest, as laziness, thoughtlessness, obduracy, self-deception, and the like. But do you just let the trumpery lie, notwithstanding? No thing, no so-called highest interest of mankind, no sacred cause is worth your serving it and occupying yourself with it for its sake. 
you may seek its worth in this alone, whether it is worth anything to you for your sake. Become like children, the biblical saying admonishes us. But children have no sacred interest and know nothing of a good cause. They know all the more accurately what they have a fancy for, and they think over to the best of their powers how they are to arrive at it. Thinking will as little cease as feeling. But the power of thoughts and ideas, the dominion of theories and principles, the sovereignty of the spirit, in short, the hierarchy, lasts as long as the parsons, that is, theologians, philosophers, statesmen, philistines, liberals, schoolmasters, servants, parents, children, married couples, Proudhon, Georges Saint, Blunchley, and others have the floor. The hierarchy will endure as long as people believe in, think of, or even criticize principles. For even the most inexorable criticism, which undermines all current principles, still does finally believe in the principle. Everyone criticizes, but the criterion is different. People run after the right criterion. The right criterion is the first presupposition. The critic starts from a proposition, a truth, a belief. This is not a creation of the critic, but of the dogmatist. Nay, commonly it is actually taken up out of the culture of the time without further ceremony like liberty, humanity, etc. The critic has not discovered man, but this truth has been established as man by the dogmatist, and the critic, who besides may be the same person with him, believes in this truth, this article of faith. In this faith, and possessed by this faith, he criticizes. The secret of criticism is some truth or other. This remains its energizing mystery. But I distinguish between servile and own criticism. If I criticize under the presupposition of a supreme being, my criticism serves the being and is carried on for its sake. If I am possessed by the belief in a free state, then everything that has a bearing on it I criticize from the standpoint of whether it is suitable to this state, for I love this state. If I criticize as a pious man, then for me everything falls into the classes of divine and diabolical. And before my criticism, nature consists of traces of God or traces of the devil hence names like God's gift, Godmount, the devil's pulpit, men of believers and unbelievers. If I criticize while believing in man as the true essence, then for me everything falls primarily into the classes of man and the unman, etc. Criticism has to this day remained a work of love, for at all times we exercised it for the love of some being. All servile criticism is a product of love, a possessedness, and proceeds according to that New Testament precept, test everything and hold fast the good. The good is the touchstone, the criterion. The good, returning under a thousand names and forms, remained always the presupposition, remained the dogmatic fixed point for this criticism, remained the fixed idea. The critic, in setting to work, impartially presupposes the truth, and seeks for the truth in the belief that it is to be found. He wants to ascertain the true, and has in it that very good. Presuppose means nothing else than put a thought in front, or think something before everything else, and think the rest from the starting point of this that has been thought, measure and criticize it by this. In other words, this is as much as to say that thinking is to begin with something already thought. If thinking began at all, instead of being begun, if thinking were a subject, an acting personality of its own, as even the plant is such, then indeed there would be no abandoning the principle that thinking must begin with itself. 
but it is just the personification of thinking that brings to pass those innumerable errors. In the Hegelian system, they always talk as if thinking or the thinking spirit, that is, personified thinking, thinking as a ghost, thought and acted. In critical liberalism, it is always said that criticism does this and that, or else that self-consciousness finds this and that. But if thinking ranks as the personal actor, thinking itself must be presupposed. If criticism ranks as such, a thought must likewise stand in front. Thinking and criticism could be active only starting from themselves, would have to be themselves the presupposition of their activity, as without being they could not be active. But thinking as a thing presupposed is a fixed thought, a dogma. Thinking and criticism, therefore, can start only from a dogma, from a thought, a fixed idea, a presupposition. With this we come back again to what was enunciated above, that Christianity consists in the development of a world of thoughts, or that it is the proper freedom of thought, the free thought, the free spirit. The true criticism, which I called servile, is therefore just as much free criticism, for it is not my own. The case stands otherwise when what is yours is not made into something that is of itself, not personified, not made independent as a spirit to itself. Your thinking has for a presupposition not thinking, but you. But thus you do presuppose yourself after all? Yes, but not for myself, but for my thinking. Before my thinking there is I. From this it follows that my thinking is not preceded by a thought, or that my thinking is without a presupposition. For the presupposition which I am for my thinking is not one made by thinking, not one thought of, but it is posited thinking itself, it is the owner of the thought, and proves only that thinking is nothing more than property, that an independent thinking, a thinking spirit, does not exist at all. This reversal of the usual way of regarding things might so resemble an empty playing with abstractions that even those against whom it is directed would acquiesce in the harmless aspect I give it, if practical consequences were not connected with it. To bring these into concise expression, the assertion now made is that man is not the measure of all things, but I am this measure. The servile critic has before his eyes another being, an idea which he means to serve. Therefore, he only slays the false idols for his God. What is done for the love of this being, what else should it be but a work of love? But I, when I criticize, do not even have myself before my eyes, but am only doing myself a pleasure, amusing myself according to my taste. According to my several needs, I chew the thing up or only inhale its odor. The distinction between the two attitudes will come out still more strikingly if one reflects that the servile critic, because love guides him, supposes he is serving the thing, cause, itself. The truth, or truth in general, people are bound not to give up, but to seek for. What else is it but the etre supreme, the highest essence? Even true criticism would have to despair if it lost faith in the truth. And yet the truth is only a thought. But it is not merely a thought, but the thought that is above all thoughts, the irrefragable thought. It is the thought itself, which gives the first hallowing to all others. It is the consecration of thoughts, the absolute, the sacred thought. The truth wears longer than all the gods, for it is only in the truth's service, and for love of it, that people have overthrown the gods, and at last God himself. The truth outlasts the downfall of the world of gods, for it is the immortal soul of this transitory world of gods. It is deity itself. 
I will answer Pilate's question, what is truth? Truth is the free thought, the free idea, the free spirit. Truth is what is free from you, what is not your own, what is not in your power. But truth is also the completely unindependent, impersonal, unreal, and incorporeal. Truth cannot step forward as you do, cannot move, change, develop. Truth awaits and receives everything from you, and itself is only through you, for it exists only in your head. You concede that the truth is a thought, but say that not every thought is a true one, or, as you are also likely to express it, not every thought is truly and really a thought. And by what do you measure and recognize the thought? By your impotence, to wit, by your being no longer able to make any successful assault on it. When it overpowers you, inspires you, and carries you away, then you hold it to be the true one. Its dominion over you certifies to you its truth. And when it possesses you and you are possessed by it, then you feel well with it, for then you have found your Lord and Master. When you were seeking the truth, what did your heart then long for? For your Master. You did not aspire to your might, but to a mighty one, and wanted to exalt a mighty one. Exalt ye the Lord our God. The truth, my dear Pilate, is the Lord, and all who seek the truth are seeking and praising the Lord. Where does the Lord exist? Where else but in your head? He is only spirit, and wherever you believe you really see him, there he is a ghost. For the Lord is merely something that is thought of, and it was only the Christian pains and agony to make the invisible visible, the spiritual corporeal, that generated the ghost, and was the frightful misery of the belief in ghosts. As long as you believe in the truth, you do not believe in yourself, and you are a servant, a religious man. You alone are the truth, or rather, you are more than the truth, which is nothing at all before you. You too do assuredly ask about the truth, you too do assuredly criticize, but you do not ask about a higher truth, to wit, one that should be higher than you, nor criticize according to the criterion of such a truth. You address yourself to thoughts and notions, as you do to the appearances of things, only for the purpose of making them palatable to you, enjoyable to you, and your own. You want only to subdue them and become their owner. You want to orient yourself and feel at home in them, and you find them true or see them in their true light when they can no longer slip away from you, no longer have any unseized or uncomprehended place, or when they are right for you, when they are your property. If afterward they become heavier again, if they wriggle themselves out of your power again, then that is just their untruth, to wit, your impotence. Your impotence is their power, your humility their exaltation. Their truth, therefore, is you, or is the nothing which you are for them and in which they dissolve. Their truth is their nothingness. Only as the property of me do the spirits, the truths, get to rest and they then for the first time really are, when they have been deprived of their sorry existence and made a property of mine, when it is no longer said, the truth develops itself, rules, asserts itself. History, also a concept, wins the victory, and the like. The truth never has won a victory, but was always my means to the victory, like the sword, the sword of truth. The truth is dead, a letter, a word, a material that I can use up, all truth by itself is dead, a corpse. It is alive only in the same way as my lungs are alive, to wit, in the measure of my own vitality. Truths are material, like vegetables and weeds. As to whether vegetable or weed, the decision lies in me. Objects are to me only material that I use up. 
Wherever I put my hand, I grasp a truth, which I trim for myself. The truth is certain to me, and I do not need to long after it. To do the truth a service is in no case my intent. It is to me only a nourishment for my thinking head, as potatoes are for my digesting stomach, or as a friend is for my social heart. As long as I have the humor and force for thinking, every truth serves me, only for me to work it up according to my powers. As reality or worldliness is vain and a thing of naught for Christians, so is the truth for me. It exists exactly as much as the things of this world go on existing, although the Christian has proved their nothingness. But it is vain, because it has its value not in itself, but in me. Of itself it is valueless. The truth is a creature. As you produce innumerable things by your activity, yes, shape the earth's surface anew, and set up works of men everywhere, so too you may still ascertain numberless truths by your thinking, and we will gladly take delight in them. Nevertheless, as I do not please to hand myself over to serve your newly discovered machines mechanically, but only help to set them running for my benefit, so too I will only use your truths without letting myself be used for their demands. All truths beneath me are to my liking. A truth above me, a truth that I should have to direct myself by, I am not acquainted with. For me there is no truth, for nothing is more than I. Not even my essence, not even the essence of man, is more than I, than I, this drop in the bucket, this insignificant man. You believe that you have done the utmost when you boldly assert that because every time has its own truth, there is no absolute truth. Why, with this you nevertheless still leave to each time its truth, and thus you quite genuinely create an absolute truth a truth that no time lacks, because every time, however its truth may be, still has a truth. Is it meant only that people have been thinking in every time, and so have had thoughts or truths, and that in the subsequent time these were other than they were in the earlier? No, the word is to be that every time had its truth of faith, and in fact none has yet appeared in which a higher truth has not been recognized, a truth that people believe they must subject themselves to as highness and majesty. Every truth of a time is its fixed idea, and if people later found another truth, this always happened only because they sought for another. They only reformed the folly and put a modern dress on it. For they did want who would dare doubt their justification for this? They wanted to be inspired by an idea. They wanted to be dominated, possessed by a thought. The most modern ruler of this kind is our essence, or man with a capital M. For all free criticism, a thought was the criterion. For own criticism, I am, I the unspeakable, and so not the merely thought of. For what is merely thought of is always speakable, because word and thought coincide. That is true which is mine, untrue that whose own I am, true as in the union, untrue the state and society. Free and true criticism takes care for the consistent dominion of a thought, an idea, a spirit, own criticism for nothing but my self-enjoyment. But in this the latter is in fact, and we will not spare it this ignominy, like the bestial criticism of instinct. I, like the criticizing beast, am concerned only for myself, not for the cause. I am the criterion of truth, but I am not an idea, but more than an idea, that is, unutterable. 
My criticism is not a free criticism, not free from me, and not servile, not in the service of an idea, but an own criticism. True or human criticism makes out only whether something is suitable to man, to the true man, but by own criticism you ascertain whether it is suitable to you. Free criticism busies itself with ideas, and therefore is always theoretical. However it may rage against ideas, it still does not get clear of them. It pitches into the ghosts, but it can do this only as it holds them to be ghosts. The ideas it has to do with do not fully disappear. The morning breeze of a new day does not scare them away. The critic may indeed come to ataraxia before ideas, but he never gets rid of them. He will never comprehend that above the bodily man there does not exist something higher, to wit, liberty, his humanity, etc. He always has a calling of man still left, humanity, and this idea of humanity remains unrealized just because it is an idea and is to remain such. If, on the other hand, I grasp the idea as my idea, then it is already realized because I am its reality. Its reality consists in the fact that I, the bodily, have it. They say the idea of liberty realizes itself in the history of the world. The reverse is the case. This idea is real as a man thinks it, and it is real in the measure in which it is idea, that is, in which I think it or have it. It is not the idea of liberty that develops itself, but men develop themselves, and, of course, in this self-development develop their thinking too. In short, the critic is not yet owner, because he still fights with ideas as with powerful aliens, as the Christian is not owner of his bad desires so long as he has to combat them. For him who contends against vice, vice exists. Criticism remains stuck fast in the freedom of knowing, the freedom of the spirit, and the spirit gains its proper freedom when it fills itself with the pure, true idea. This is the freedom of thinking, which cannot be without thoughts. Criticism smites one idea only by another, such as that of privilege by that of manhood, or that of egoism by that of unselfishness. In general, the beginning of Christianity comes on the stage again in its critical end, egoism being combated here as there. I am not to make myself the individual count, but the idea, the general. Why warfare of the priesthood with egoism, of the spiritually minded with the worldly minded, constitutes the substance of all Christian history. In the newest criticism, this war only becomes all-embracing, fanaticism complete. Indeed, neither can it pass away till it passes thus, after it has had its life and its rage out. Whether what I think and do is Christian, what do I care? Whether it is human, liberal, humane, whether unhuman, illiberal, inhuman, what do I ask about that? If only it accomplishes what I want, if only I satisfy myself in it, then overlay it with predicates as you will, it is all alike to me. Perhaps I, too, in the very next moment, defend myself against my former thoughts. I, too, am likely to change suddenly my mode of action, but not on account of its not corresponding to Christianity, not on account of its running counter to the eternal rights of man, not on account of its affronting the idea of mankind, humanity, and humanitarianism, but because I am no longer all in it, because it no longer furnishes me any full enjoyment because I doubt the earlier thought, or no longer please myself in the mode of action just now practiced. As the world as property has become a material with which I undertake what I will, 
so the spirit, too, as property, must sink down into a material, before which I no longer entertain any sacred dread. Then, firstly, I shall shudder no more before a thought, let it appear as presumptuous and devilish as it will, because if it threatens to become too inconvenient and unsatisfactory for me, its end lies in my power. But neither shall I recoil from any deed, because there dwells in it a spirit of godlessness, immorality, wrongfulness, as little as St. Boniface pleased to desist, through religious scrupulousness, from cutting down the sacred oak of the heathens. If the things of the world have once become vain, the thoughts of the spirit must also become vain. No thought is sacred, for let no thought rank as devotions. No feeling is sacred, no sacred feeling of friendship, mother's feelings, etc. No belief is sacred. They are all alienable, my alienable property, and are annihilated as they are created by me. The Christian can lose all things or objects, the most loved persons, these objects of his love, without giving up himself, that is, in the Christian sense, his spirit, his soul, as lost. The owner can cast from him all the thoughts that were dear to his heart, and kindled his zeal, and will likewise gain a thousandfold again, because he, their creator, remains. Unconsciously and involuntarily we all strive toward ownness, and there will hardly be one among us who has not given up a sacred feeling, a sacred thought, a sacred belief. Nay, we probably meet no one who could not still deliver himself from one or another of his sacred thoughts. All our contention against convictions starts from the opinion that maybe we are capable of driving our opponent out of his entrenchments of thought. But what I do unconsciously I half do, and therefore, after every victory over a faith, I become again the prisoner, possessed of a faith, which then takes my whole self anew into its service, and makes me an enthusiast for reason after I have ceased to be enthusiastic for the Bible, or an enthusiast for the idea of humanity, after I have fought long enough for that of Christianity. Doubtless, as owner of thoughts, I shall cover my property with my shield, just as I do not, as owner of things, willingly let everybody help himself to them. But at the same time, I shall look forward smilingly to the outcome of the battle, smilingly lay the shield on the corpses of my thoughts and my faith, smilingly triumph when I am beaten. That is the very humor of the thing. Everyone who has sublimer feelings is able to vent his humor on the pettinesses of men. But to let it play with all great thoughts, sublime feelings, noble inspiration, and sacred faith presupposes that I am the owner of all. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette.